Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby that you may grow by it. His divine power has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through them we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption uh, which is in the world through lust. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Before we open up God's word this morning, let's bow our heads together and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, your grace is without measure. Father, we are thankful that your grace, your love has shone forth to us in our salvation, that we have a Savior freely given to us from demonstrating your love toward us. And he went to the cross where he was cruelly abused, tortured, and died for our sins. That during those three hours of darkness that your justice imputed to him our sins, the sins of the world. And he paid for those sins as our substitute. And for that we are thankful that we gain the benefit of his death simply by trusting in him and not by any works on our behalf. And Father, as we continue our study about grace this morning, we pray that you might open our eyes to ways in which we are to apply that in our thinking, in our communication, and in the way we live. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been having a topical study within the framework of our Ephesian study for the last uh, several weeks. At first, I thought that I would cover this in about three weeks at most, but there are a lot of new folks who are not only listening online, but also in the congregation that have never gone through this. And a lot of you who've heard me go through it a lot of times haven't heard it in a while, and you need a reminder because we all need to be reminded of the grace of God. So as we come together today, we're looking at a third lesson on grace orientation. And the focus in this lesson is how do we apply grace orientation? Uh, and we have seen in our previous studies that grace orientation has to do with aligning our thinking to the grace of God. And I use the illustration of orienteering, which is, I, I imagine they still do this in various um, military contexts, but now we have GPS and other things. But in the old days, many of us learned how to do this with just a topographical map along with a compass so that we could align our position geographically to the reality of the landscape and not be lost. And so it has great application. It's a great word to use for aspects of the Christian life. We're to orient our thinking to the reality of grace, 
and we are to orient our thinking to the reality of God's Word. So we have grace orientation and doctrinal orientation. And so in uh, grace orientation, we're aligning ourselves with God's grace. That begins with understanding what happened at the cross, understanding the grace of salvation. And then we go on probably next week and align ourselves, learn what it means to align ourselves with the Bible. Now, one of the things that we're going to do today is that we are going to uh, continue looking at certain application uh, from the Word. And we're from, starting off with this passage from Ephesians 4, 26, 27, where we have the command to be angry and do not sin. And so how do we, how do we apply this? I mean, that's, that's the question at hand. How do we do this? How do we not sin? Uh, and that is always a problem because Scripture says that we have three enemies, and those enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. The flesh is our sin nature, this internal enemy that we have that we always struggle with and that we will always struggle with until we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. Now, Scripture tells us that we are no longer under the dominion of the sin nature, and some people struggle with that. There are those who hold to lordship salvation, and at the essence of the that whole idea of how Calvinism and Reformed theology views the spiritual life is that they believe that when you are regenerate, when you're regenerated, you're born again, that something happens. Uh, it's not just that the sin nature loses its power hold on us, but that it can't do certain things. There, there, there's it, it, Its power or its sinfulness is somehow uh, diluted. And I was clued into that some years ago when I read an article in a theological journal written by a former classmate of mine uh, at Dallas Seminary where he says in the last chapter he was analyzing a book review written uh, on Lewis Berry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, on his book, He That Is Spiritual. And in his concluding paragraph, he said that the weakness of Dr. Chafer's position was that he um, he did not have... Uh, he he had a too powerful sin nature that he didn't understand that regeneration limits that power and that reflected uh, revealed two things first of all in reformed theology they do not have what i consider to be a biblical view of regeneration and there's a one of our uh, distance learners who's listening right now another state has uh, been a student of this for decades and has so far compiled maybe 300 pages analyzing the different definitions of regeneration among theologians. There's little agreement on this, and that is because of a number of factors. But the point I am making is, if you believe that regeneration somehow does something so you can't commit certain sins or you can't commit them for very long, 
then you end up making that uh, lack of sinfulness a criteria of whether or not you're really saved. Oh, did you hear about what so-and-so did? They said they were a Christian. See, the assumption underlying that is if you committed such and such a sin, then maybe you're not really saved. That's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture says that we are saved not by works, either on the front end by trying to do something along with trusting Christ to be saved, or at the back end that our behavior, our morality, our actions somehow will be qualitatively different necessarily because of regeneration. That's the issue, is is that that necessary connection that someone truly regenerate will not do certain things afterwards. That's the supposition. There is a necessary connection between phase one justification and phase two uh, sanctification or our spiritual growth. And what what is pre what the prerequisite is for those who are going to grow and mature is that they have to learn something of the word. They are to desire the unadulterated milk of the word like a newborn baby. Does that sound familiar? Their desire, if they don't get it, if they don't get fed, then there's no growth. That doesn't mean that they're not saved. It's just that nobody told them anything beyond the simple gospel. And so this, this is a problem. And uh, a reality is that we still have a sin nature. We don't have to do what the sin nature tempts us to do anymore. Because now we have, we do have a new nature, and we have the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, but it's up to our volition as to whether we're going to choose to apply the Word or not. And we can decide that, well, I'm glad I'm going to heaven, and I'm just going to, going to abuse the grace of God and live according to my own desires, and, uh, but I'll still be in heaven. So as we've looked at this, we've looked at the fact that anger is a gateway sin to a lot of other sins. Part of the problem in having the kind of theology that one has in uh, Lordship Salvation is you often have a, an anemic view of sin. And these are just a few of the sins that are triggered if we give in to the anger that comes up within our soul. You have mental attitude sins of bitterness and jealousy and resentment, and you can think about revenge, and that can lead to uh, sins of the tongue, abusive speech, gossip, slander, innuendo. Uh, we can have uh, emotional sins that also are triggered by anger, and then that can lead to physical overt sins. Many things happen because of a failure to understand the grace of God in salvation and, and what happens. And we fail to grow and learn how to, uh, how to control our sin nature and how not to sin. And it always comes down to our volition. This is why we have so many passages like the one I've been quoting in Deuteronomy 30.19 that we have a choice between life and death. Uh, if we follow the sin nature, it leads to carnal death or we're separated from God in terms of fellowship and we're living like a spiritually dead unbeliever. 
that if you understand Romans uh, six thirty three on that that the, the uh, wages of sin is death. That's often quoted. I quoted the wrong verse. Um, that when you look at uh, I quoted the wrong verse reference. Uh, when you have um, the wages of sin is death there in uh, in Romans six. That's in the context of the spiritual life. That when we are living according to the sin nature, we're going to reap death not spiritual death because we've been made alive again in Christ but we're going to live like a spiritually dead person but the free gift of God Paul reminds them is eternal life so we have to live like a person who has been uh, has been regenerate so you have a choice all the time between uh, living according to the way that seems right to man but the end thereof is death in uh, uh, Proverbs 4:12. And uh, the Word of God, which is what gives us life, and that's Psalm 119.50. So it's always that choice between um, Romans 6.23 and uh, learning to uh, walk in light and not reap the wages of sin. Same issue in the Old Testament. So he started looking at what the Bible teaches about spiritual life, and I'm not going to review everything here. Uh, if I end up doing that, then when we get towards the end, we'll be, have two lessons just on review. That will take too long. So we're looking at how God has provided us with these spiritual skills, and that they're designed to keep us to use them so that we stay in fellowship. We stay enjoying that fellowship, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, and not getting out of fellowship or not breaking that walk by the Spirit so that we reap the wages of sin in our spiritual life. So I've used this illustration of the fortress because that is a common uh, metaphor used in Old Testament passages that God is our fortress, he's our refuge, he's our shield, he's our strong tower. All of those are just different metaphors for the same idea. And when we're walking by the Spirit, then we have these, we use these skills to stay there. Uh, Psalm 18.2 is a one of many verses that talk about God as our Matsada. That's our soul fortress. And we've gone through the first Three and now we are at grace orientation. I have taken two previous lessons to just go through this. What is grace orientation? As I've said, it's conforming or aligning our thinking toward people and situations and events with God's grace policy. We have to align not just our thinking, but our communication and our actions. It involves our thing, but it really starts with thinking. If we're not thinking uh, according to grace, then we're going to be in serious trouble. We're going to fail right away. Grace means that God has freely given to us everything that we need on the basis of who he is and what Christ did on the cross. We have to start there. The cross is the pattern. God, in this way, loved us that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. It is God's love that provides the salvation for us. Grace is a function of God's love. That word that I refer to many times in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, sometimes it's translated love, sometimes it's translated loving kindness, sometimes it is uh, translated God's uh, faithful love, is chesed, but it relates to God's faithfulness to who he is and to his covenant, and that he is going to do that which is best for us, based on his integrity and on his righteousness. And that's the pattern for us in giving towards others. But it involves humility, as we have seen. We took a long look at this last week in 2 Corinthians 12 with the Apostle Paul, that he had been given so many revelations, the Lord had given him so much, that the Lord also gave him a thorn in the flesh, which is designed as a, a permission for a demon to raise up opposition and persecution for Paul, because if you're one of the greatest minds that ever lived, the temptation towards arrogance is profound. And so Paul faced a lot of opposition and resentment and rejection, and that is a tool God used to keep him grace-oriented in reference to humility. You cannot be grace-oriented if you are self-absorbed and if you are, are arrogant. Uh, fourth, grace means that God has already freely given to us everything we need. That is, we look to Scripture to handle whatever testing comes our way through either prosperity or adversity. And as we apply the Word, then we will grow uh, spiritually. So grace means that our relationship to God is not based on our merit, activities, or actions. Now, what that means when we apply that to others is that our attitude toward them is not going to be based on their merit, activities, or actions. And that's hard because we want to react to people when they do not meet our expectations. Grace orientation means that God has already provided it all. When we have these words like granted or give where God is the subject, it's always talking about grace. And his power has, notice this word comes up at the end of this, of our morning worship today. We're going to sing the hymn, He Giveth More Grace. And I want to read how um, Annie Flint crafted the chorus. It starts with God's love. His love has no limit. The next line is his grace has no measure. See, love is what is behind grace. And then the next phrase is his power has no boundary known unto men. It is God's omnipotence that is behind what he can provide for grace and because he can do all things related to what he desires to do he brings that about and you that comes right out of this this scripture his power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness that there wasn't anything that needed to be discovered or learned in terms of sociology or psychology or biology or geology that was discovered in the 18th 19th or 20th centuries 
that was necessary in order to have happiness, joy, and peace in our lives. Because if that was necessary, then the Word of God is not sufficient. That Christians had to wait sixteen or 1,700 years before they could solve problems. Maybe they had to wait until they got Prozac. Someone once said to me, Prozac, once I was on Prozac, I could walk by the Spirit. You have to really understand that. We have a culture that is so psychologized. It's been called by some some church historians as the therapeutic age. We interpret because our culture is so psychologized, we tend to interpret Scripture within the grid of modern psychotherapy, which is so wrong. Okay, If you can't do it without modern psychotherapy, then what you're saying is that God didn't give us enough. And that's one of the reasons I went to 2 Corinthians 12 last week. So he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's through the true knowledge and through his precious and magnificent promises. So he's seen that there's grace before salvation, which is common grace. There's grace at salvation, which is the sufficiency of the cross. We can't add anything to what Christ did on the cross. And then there is grace after salvation, which is the sufficiency of the Scripture and the sufficiency of grace. We are to grow by means of the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we studied last time in 2 Corinthians 12, uh, nine in the context that uh, Paul has prayed three times that God would remove this thorn. God said that he he said no because my grace is sufficient for you. You rely on my grace to handle the problems of the uh, suffering, the persecution, the adversity that comes your way, and that will teach you humility. So we are exhorted by passages like 2 Timothy 2.1 to be strong in the grace. We're to be strong, literally it indicates means, by means of grace. You exercise spiritual strength by means of grace. See, that's grace orientation as a skill to solve the problems and challenges that come your way in life. It is its, its application. Same thing with with uh, grace in uh, by growing in grace and knowledge. It's, you grow by means of grace and knowledge. So we've looked at these things, and we did it last week in terms of Second Corinthians, Second uh, Corinthians twelve, and we uh, saw how God has provided uh, provided so much for us. Now, as we look at this passage. We, let me sk- I'm going to skip a couple of slides here. Uh, we go through grace orientation, and then we learn the significance of humility. Now, this is really an important part of the test, because how do we show humility? We show it by being obedient. That's what Christ demonstrated on the cross in Philippians 2.8, that he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. We humble ourselves by being obedient, not just to the Lord, but to the Scripture in various areas where there are spheres of authority that we may or may not be uh, very much in favor of. 
So we have to uh, learn how to solve our problems this way. And James 4, 6 says, He gives more grace, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We have to rely upon the Lord. And what's the conclusion of that? Submit to God. It all starts with submission to God. That's why when you get into issues related to uh, living a Christian life and the problem with sin, we have to submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word, Romans 8, 7. We have to submit ourselves to the authority of government, even government we might not agree with, even government we think is out of control. Uh, Paul and Peter both wrote during the time when Nero was Caesar in Rome, and this was an unjust government. And there was no marching in the streets, there's no demonstrations, there's uh, none of those kinds of things that we often read about, hear about, and even hear uh, pastors say, well, we need to go do the, demonstrate or do this or do that. That's not the methodology that you see in the New Testament. So we see that Christ is the head of the church, and so you have commands related to wives to submit to their husbands as to the Lord. So this shows a correlation there in how you submit to the authority of your husband wives, and your submission to the Lord. Same thing with husbands. Husbands are the head of the house, and they are subject to the Lord. He's their authority. So everybody's under under an authority, children under the authority of the parents, servants uh, to their masters. And the issue always comes down to arrogance and humility behind all of these things. So how do we actually apply this? Well, first of all, it's helpful to understand the words that we have in Scripture. Uh, there are a number of words that are used to relate to, to grace, and I'm going to put three of them up here. They're all related to one another. You have the basic noun is charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, which is translated as grace or gracefulness, graciousness. It can be translated in several passages simply as thanks or thanksgiving, and it reflects gratitude. So it has a range of meaning. So not only when we talk about grace orientation are we to be humble, but we're to be grateful, as we'll, as we'll see. Secondly, you have this word, charisma. Notice that first part, charis, and it adds the last two letters, M-A. This refers to a gift and is often used for spiritual gifts. And then we have this third word, eucharistia, which is the word where we get our word Eucharist. See, the E-U is something that is uh, good or, or pleasing, and then it's charis. The root of giving the word for giving thanks is grace, and giving thanks is part of graciousness. So the second point, as I pointed out already, we grow by means of grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know what grace, grace refers to grace orientation. Knowledge will be what we go to next with uh, doctrinal orientation. But we, it's God's grace and using God's grace, being dependent upon God's grace and applying it towards others. That is fundamental to spiritual growth. It indicates a means by which we, we grow. Uh, a third thing we observe with these words is that, uh, 
Thankfulness is a key character quality that is related to grace. We should be grateful, thankful. That to, to begin to do this, we have to develop a mental attitude of gratitude. It takes thought. It takes a conscientious mentality saying, I need to be grateful when the guy cuts me off in traffic on I-10. That shows humility to God. Ephesians 5, 4 says, Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So there's a contrast in the person who is grateful with certain kinds of behavior. And if you look at those those uh, first ones, uh, some of that relates to how we respond when somebody does cut us off in traffic on I-10. Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's not only being thankful for all things, but it's uh, we are to give, uh, it, it, as we'll see in uh, the passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, it's giving thanks in all things. But Colossians 3.17 says, Whatever we do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through Him. So we are to develop this conscientious thought process that from the time we wake up in the morning, what, how am I going to approach the day with thankfulness and putting a shift into our thinking so that we are grateful for what may happen that wasn't planned, that is the opposite of what was planned, and being thankful to God for what he is providing and learning to depend on him in that way. Uh, one starting point in this is to understand our position in Christ. We stand in grace, Scripture says. We've made a big deal about our position in Christ in this Ephesians 4 passage. When we are placed into Christ, we're placed in the new man. We have a new identity, a new legal position before God. Uh, We are part of the family of God in the church age. Christ is the head of the church, and Christ is the one who is our authority. We stand. That's talking about our position in Christ. We stand in grace. We're there because of God's grace. So, who we are in Christ, this new identity, is shaped by grace. We need to think that through in terms of our thoughts, in terms of our speech, in terms of our actions. Romans 5, 2 says that through whom, that is through Christ, also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Along with that, 1 Peter says in 1 Peter 5.12 that he has written this letter by Silvanus, that's the Latin form of Silas, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this, that is what he has said in 1 Peter, this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Okay, so we stand in grace, that's our identity. 
So what we have to do is learn how to live, think, talk like we're standing in grace. A fifth point is that this took place, this standing took place when we first trusted in Christ as Savior. So from the minute, that's when we are regenerated, when we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, that's the baptism by the Holy Spirit, we are placed into Christ. We are in his body. So that's that's our whole starting point. Um, And when we look at Romans 5.15, Paul says, but the free gift, now that's the word charisma. We'll look at that later, but you have the word charisma there. The, which is unusual because it's replying, reply, you, usually it relates to spiritual gifts, but here it's related to the gift of eternal life. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. That's the gift of eternal life, our new position in Christ. And then two verses later, he talks about the abundance of grace. He says, If by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign, future tense, in life through Jesus Christ. So it's preparing us for the future. We have to learn to be grace-oriented now because that directly correlates to what position we may have when Jesus Christ comes back and we as part of the body will rule and reign with him. We're preparing ourselves for that future time. Developing our capacity for grace includes grace, graciousness in how we live our lives today. Sixth point, Jesus Christ is the pattern we are to follow. So we have a model. We are to look at Jesus. That's part of our occupation with Christ, Hebrews 12, 2. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. See, Jesus did that because he was humble, humbled himself, and was obedient to the point of the cross. So as such, he is the one who demonstrates what grace orientation Uh, really is. And the seventh point, our worship of God is directly related to grace orientation. Uh, It's in response to God's grace, and it should be part of our mindset, our mental attitude, when we sing. Did you think of that before? Well, this is clearly stated in Scripture, Colossians 3.16, which is talking about the flip side of the coin of being filled by means of the Spirit. We are Uh, we are to let the word of Christ richly dwell within us. In Ephesians 5, 19 and following, you have the same results of being filled by the Spirit as you do in Colossians 3, 16 and following, and letting the word of Christ dwell within you. Uh, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, And then you have these participles, so I think they're describing what wise living is. It's by teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So that gives you the criteria, one criteria for what kind of things we should sing. 
We should sing things that teach us something, that teach one another something, or admonish one another. And as I said, in our closing hymn, uh, when we get there and we're seeing He giveth more grace, uh, this is taken from two passages. It's taken from uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, which we looked at last week in the sufficiency of God's grace. And it's, it's taken from uh, Philippians, I think it was 4.19, that God, uh, uh, God provides us all of our needs through his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And that's part of the background for understanding what she's written. And I'll tell you a little bit about her before we, we sing that. So we are to teach and admonish one another, which you can do with the words of a good hymn like this. And then it says we are singing with grace in our hearts. Hearts doesn't refer to our emotion. It refers to our mi- mindset, that when we sing, we are to sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. So that's part of grace orientation is it impacts how we sing and that we sing. Some people don't want to sing. They they just sit there and mouth the words or whatever. I don't think that's biblical. Okay, eight. Grace orientation is the means we grow spiritually to develop our spiritual gift to serve others. Now, this is something that I think along with singing that I've never heard anybody bring out on grace orientation. But this is right there in in the scripture that we are to grow spiritually by grace. And that means developing the capacity to utilize our spiritual gift. You don't even have to know what it is. It will manifest itself as you grow spiritually. This idea that you can sit down and take some kind of little spiritual gift test and figure out what your gift is 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 just baloney. Uh, That was real popular back in the 70s. But it's, it's like when you were growing up and you got into your adolescent years, by then you had discovered that you had certain talents or abilities, whether they were physical, whether they were mental, but, but they developed and you realize you, you liked doing certain things and you enjoyed doing certain things. And those were areas that you could utilize to, uh, impact a future career or whatever you did with work, whatever, some things like that. Uh, some of us discovered things we didn't have, uh, but you may grow up, and, and if you're a boy, I'd look around, and I'd see a lot of friends of mine, and they just love working with cars. They were just really into all of the mechanics and everything, take everything apart, put everything back together again. And, you know, that's just a real engineering gene. My dad was the chief engineer at Tenneco when he retired, and um, I didn't get that gene. You know, I would get the Mr. Machine, figure it out, and it didn't interest me anymore, and I would go read a book. Uh, so that was that was me. But we discovered that my giftedness was in different areas, in teaching and uh, communication. Uh, grace orientation means we develop these things. The word charisma, which is used for spiritual gifts, is used 17 times in the epistles, which is interesting, but it's not used at all in the Gospels. In Paul, it's used eight times in Corinthians, in the Corinthian epistles. Why? Because they're all confused on the spiritual gifts. But it's not really used uh, in anywhere else by, by Paul. Mostly it's used just to refer to the spiritual gifts in those passages. And that helps us to understand 
uh, what Peter describes in 1 Peter 4.10, he says, As each one has received a gift, charisma, minister, the word is uh, diakoneo, serve one another with that gift as good stewards of the what? Manifold grace of God. See, grace orientation means you come to function within your spiritual gift and you serve one another. You serve the Lord through serving one another. And that's just a great opportunity in in many different ways. Everybody in a congregation has a role to play in the health of that congregation through the use of of your spiritual gifts and serving the Lord. And over the years of this congregation, we've had a lot of people who just volunteer to do all kinds of things. And this congregation really runs on these people who volunteer and help. The thing is that as our congregation has aged, we are seeing some of those who helped a lot get to the point when they can't quite help so much. And so those who are younger and newer to the congregation need to uh, volunteer and be part of that. And that's just the progress of the growth of any, any Christian, Christian organization. So part of grace orientation is developing your spiritual gift and serving one another within the, within the congregation. Uh, Hebrews 12:28 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, looking forward to when we are with the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom, Since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably. Isn't that interesting? Part of grace orientation is maturing in your spiritual life to use your spiritual gift to serve the Lord within uh, the congregation. To Timothy, Paul writes, Do not neglect neglect the gift that is in you. Now, the interpretation is, what does this mean? The gift that he's talking about is Timothy's spiritual gift of being a pastor-teacher. But it has application to any believer who has a spiritual gift. Uh, do not neglect the gift that is in you. In verse uh, 2 Timothy 1.6, he says, Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you. So everybody has a spiritual gift. And, we, and as he exhorted Timothy in the context to, that he needed to utilize his spiritual gift of pastor teacher, that applies to any believer because we all have, all have spiritual gifts. And then ninth, grace orientation is manifested with kindness, forgiveness, and compassion. Ephesians 4.32, which we are coming upon, in our study, all of these things that we're studying in terms of the spiritual skills are embedded in everything, every verse between here and, and 6-9. Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, that relates to compassion. Tender-hearted by forgiving. How do you, okay, how am I kind to one another? By forgiveness. And the word, therefore, forgiveness is the Greek verb charizomai. See, it's charis. It's the verb form, to be gracious. And that word charizomai is used for forgiving debts, and it's used for forgiving people for that which they may have done against us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. How do we do that? It's a instrumental participle. By forgiving one another, 
What's the standard? Even as God in Christ forgave you. How did Christ forgive you? Oh, you, we did all kinds of things, didn't we? We violated God's standards left and right. We have all done things that we don't want anybody to ever know about. But Christ, God in Christ forgave us of all of those things. He, what did he say on the cross? To those who were crucifying him, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. That's grace orientation. That's our example. And see, we have a chapter break there, which is unfortunate because Ephesians 5, 1 continues the thought. It's therefore, the command is be kind to one another, tenderhearted by forgiving one another. Therefore, and the standard is as God in Christ forgave you, therefore be imitators of God as dear children. Imitating what? Imitating forgiveness. And walk in love. See, 5.1 is the first part of the sentence. Be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Grace orientation is a manifestation of our understanding of God's love for us. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us. Why did he do that? So we could be forgiven of sins. See, forgiveness is, is, is a fundamental expression of grace orientation. So as we go through this, we also recognize the emphasis on compassion, and this is external actions. 1 Peter 3.8 says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tender-hearted, and be courteous. Drive through any grocery store parking lot in this city, and you will discover that courtesy leaves the vehicle when they enter the parking lot. You can find out how grace-oriented you are by how you handle things in a parking lot. I think that's a whole new doctrine. <laughs> but that's, that's the idea. What's our mindset? That's something we have to conscientiously think about. So what we have seen this morning is that the application of grace orientation is predicated on the pattern of Jesus Christ and his for, his provision of forgiveness for us the way he ha- he has forgiven others and that that is to be the way in which we think and speak and live that's what this is all about. We have to understand what grace is in order to implement it. We have to think conscientiously about the way in which we think about our lives and the issues in our lives and how we should apply grace to others. Remember, it means they don't deserve it. How many of us have a asterisk at the end of certain sentences and there's a hidden uh, there's a hidden uh, condition there that if you do it the way I want you to do it, or if you behave the way I want you to behave, and because you didn't, then there's not going to be any forgiveness. But that's not how God handles things. We are to be Christ-like in the way we do things, and understand how God forgave us. 
and then we are to forgive others in that same way. That is grace orientation. So we'll continue next time, move forward to what it means to align our thinking to the Word of God, doctrinal orientation. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to reflect upon your goodness and your grace toward us, that we we did not deserve anything. There was nothing that compelled you by necessity to provide salvation, but it was your love who provided it. Uh, not because of who we are, but because of your righteousness, your justice, and your love. That dynamic within your person provided for us, and we are so thankful. And yet, as we receive freely your grace in our lives, we are to turn around and demonstrate that as living examples of your grace in the way we deal with others, uh, that we may be a light in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to think through these things. And, Father, we pray that if there's anyone here who has never trusted Christ as Savior, has never been sure of their salvation, never known what was required in order to go to heaven, all that is needed, Scripture says, is to believe that Jesus Christ is who he said he was, this eternal Son of God, and that he went to the cross. And because he was the Son of God, he was able to die as our substitute to die in our place, to take the penalty of sin upon himself during those three hours of darkness on the cross. And because there he became sin for us, not a sinner, but became sin for us, took on our penalty, we can receive your righteousness by faith in him. It is a free gift. And for the Father, we pray that you would open the Uh, hearts and minds of people to hear this, that they might come to understand that gospel truth. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.